0: This is a Soul Fire production. Are you ready to enhance your sexual, erotic, and relational intelligence? Welcome to Higher Sex, where we take sex education to the next level. Come here to get curious about sex and cultivate acceptance, deep love, and intimacy no topic is too hot to handle. As a psychotherapist and sexologist, Kelly playfully leads listeners through worlds of informative and actionable sex education, personal stories from her inspirational guests, and leading-edge research from trusted experts. Higher sex is scandalous and explorative, leaving you wanting more. Let's keep this conversation going. Subscribe today so you don't miss out on these hot news episodes each week welcome 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 back to higher sex I have got one of my idols on the show today I can't even believe it dr. Lori Mintz she is a feminist professor, author, speaker, and therapist. She is a tenured professor at the University of Florida and teaches the psychology of human sexuality to hundreds of undergraduate students each year. What we're going to be talking about are her two most popular press books that she wrote to empower women's sexuality. One is titled Becoming Cliterate: Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It. The other book is called A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, How to Reclaim Your Desire and Reignite Your Relationship Relationship. relationship with the same goal of providing scientifically accurate sex positive information to enhance female pleasure. I'm so excited to have her on the show. Also she is a TED Talk speaker and finally for over 30 years she has maintained a small private practice working with both individuals and couples on general and sexual issues. I know you're gonna love her as much as I do so stick around and buy her books. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lori Mintz. I've been a huge fan of your work, especially your recent book, Equality Matters in Terms of the Orgasm Gap and Becoming cliterate. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your findings and your wealth of information with the listeners.
1: I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, I would love to just start off by what made you gravitate towards becoming involved in sex research and sex therapy specifically, because I know you have a doctorate in counseling psychology, right? And then you went into the academic field and then you sort of gravitated towards this way. So I'd love to learn more about your journey.
1: Well, thank you for asking that. So, I mean, I was trained as a counseling psychologist and have always had both an academic job and a private practice because I teach clinical coursework and, it really felt like I wanted to, and I loved doing therapy, but I was not always involved in sex therapy. For many, many years, I basically had a general practice and I also specialized in eating disorders. However, I've always been really comfortable with the topic of sex, which I credit to my now deceased mother, who was very comfortable with sex way ahead of her time, very cutting edge. And so I kind of always asked my clients about sex. And everybody I asked, maybe 90% of the clients I asked would be like, "Uh, yeah, I do have a problem in that area and I wouldn't have said anything had you not asked me, which is what the research shows, right? So it just really inspired me to get retrained. So I really knew what I was doing beyond asking the question. And then after I got full professor, which is like the highest you can go in academia, I kind of thought to myself, what do I really, had a little existential crisis. (laughs) What do I really want to do with my life and, um, or my work life, I should say. And I realized like I published a lot of academic articles because I like to write, to be honest, not because I like research. I like to write and I had to do it for my job. And I thought, I want to write a book, which of course is what everyone says, right? I want to write a book. But I thought the time is now. And Mm -hmm. so I like took all these trainings and workshops and wrote my first book. And then I may be going on too long, but then the scientist in me kind of clicked on too. And I was like, oh what if it's not helpful? I have this baby out in the world, my book, and what if she's not helping people? And that's when I discovered that there was a whole body of literature on evaluating the effectiveness of self-help. And I couldn't do it myself because of experiment or bias, but I started kind of giving the idea to grad students to you want to do a study on a randomized clinical trial on my book? And that started a whole nother thing. So and that
0: book was A Tired Woman's Guide to
1: Sex, correct? A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. Passionate yeah.
0: Sex. Oh, and so what were the results of that? I love that you wanted to do a study on your book to see its effectiveness. So it, yeah, but a testament to you wanting to put out meaningful work that people can
1: really translate and take away and put into actionable steps for themselves. So there were four studies on four. the Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex and two on becoming clitorate. So real fast, the first study of A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex said women who read it improve their sexual functioning, orgasm, satisfaction, arousal, desire as compared to people who did nothing. The next one compared the book to another book, which is also an effect, book. So I want to tout someone else's book as well. Catherine Hall's Reclaiming Your Sexual Self. Both books did really well as compared to doing nothing. Then the next two studies, one compared A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex to erotic fiction, and they were about equal. Both increased desire and arousal. And then the next study which I was so proud of, compared the book to a pill, but it was a placebo pill. People thought it was a pill for desire and both increased desire when you were taking the pill, reading the book and arousal. But when you stopped taking the pill, of course, you went back to baseline, whereas even when you stopped reading the book, the changes kept growing. So I called it skills versus pills and sort of argued that skills will stay with you and grow pills. Only work when you're taking them. And then I did the same with Becoming Clitorate, then found that women who read it, they become more orgasmic, more assertive, more communicative, more knowledgeable, better body image, more sexual empowerment. And men who read the chapter just for them have decreased their harmful ideas, become better communicators, more knowledgeable. So, really proud of those studies yeah. that they show that, you know, my books actually help people, which is the reason i spent countless hours and many tears writing them <laughs> oh my gosh yeah and you have so many good steps
0: and takeaways in the book as well but i would love to start out with what were the findings in terms of like the orgasm gap for you to write about why orgasm equality matters why is that gap even exists in our in our culture like why is that there yes. because it's very evidence-based right like yes it's it is
1: The research is just so clear that when cisgender women, people who are born with a vagina who identify as women, Get it on with cisgender men, people born with a penis who identify as men. There's a huge orgasm gap. So, you know, just a few stats in one study by Wade 39% of women versus 91% of men said they always or usually orga- always orgasm during sex. Now, they, Wade didn't ask, is this hookup or relationships? But what we know from subsequent research is that it's the biggest, the gap is the biggest in hookup sex. It gets smaller and, you know, friends with benefits, subsequent hookups, you know, gets closer together in relationship sex, but never closes altogether. And we know people say, oh, it's because women's orgasms are difficult or elusive. But the other research tells us that's not true because when women get it on with themselves or with other women, there is no problem with orgasm. There's no gap. No gap, so we know that the gap is and i'm not blaming men it's 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 in Culture. the institution the problem is the cultural institution of heterosexual sex, and that's what we need to change and that's why I wrote the book. Uh.
0: Yes. And obviously I would go all over and read and listen to a lot of the stuff that you've been saying about it. And you even said, you know, talking about if the focus is on penis and vagina sex or penetrative sex, and if that's how people are looking at sex and are focused solely on that, then it really does widen this gap. Why did you name it Becoming Clitorate? Because I think that what I've heard you say is if we take the pressure off penis and vagina sex or penetrative sex, we could start to broaden our views and perspective on what pleasurable sex is. So can you tell us a little bit about why Absolutely.
1: And clear. thanks for your careful reading. And I so appreciate that. Yeah, that... You know, in Becoming Clitorate and in other writings and talks, I argue that the reason for the orgasm gap is our overvaluing of penetrative sex. Think about the words we use. We use the word sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same. We relegate clitoral stimulation to foreplay or just a lead up to that main event. And movies, you know, media images show women having these fast and fabulous orgasms from penetration. And that's all false. Because we know from science that only four to eighteen percent of women orgasm reliably from penile thrusting alone. The rest need clitoral stimulation, external stimulation, either alone or coupled with penetration. Here's a stat I love to throw around: when women pleasure themselves, less than one percent do it exclusively by putting something in their vaginas. Wow! We know how, and they orgasm easily. within minutes, like 95%. So the bottom line is that if we take the focus off of orgasm from penetration or penetration as the main event, we're going to have more, and we equally value clitoral stimulation and penetration, that orgasm glap would clothes and I heard you even mention about how if males or people with
0: penises could stop like promoting the size of their penis potentially and could start f- focusing on like oh look how bendy your fingers are and look how you can <laughs> do it that way Then we can start to change some of what we're trying to promote right
1: right because this really harms men too I mean it's like dick-sized jokes all they do is hurt men's ego make men feel bad and they make men believe that their penis is essential to our pleasure. And the truth is it's not. So we need to do our part by let's not make those dick size jokes anymore. Indeed, let's compliment men for the flexibility of their fingers and tongs or their willingness to hold a vibrator.
0: Yes. And that's a big piece of it too, where it's changing the script. Because from what you were saying before, usually it's goal-oriented, the lead up until penetrative sex, and then it's done. So by being able to diversify your sexuality and play around and explore and experiment. And I also love how you really drive home that Sex is very nuanced and layered, and it's not a one-size-fits-all. Yes, mind-body connection, mindful sex, like there's a few themes there that you talk about. but in terms of skill and technique, you really have to explore your own body and be able to communicate what feels better. So can you talk a little bit more? about that and how people can start to do that. All of this
1: is in the clinical literature, but I just sort of translated it into like a formula. And so I think the best way to answer that question is to tell you like about the four self-help chapters in becoming clitorate, well, or five if you wanna. So the beginning talks all about what we just talked about, right? Like, why do we have this gap? But then the next chapter is the anatomy chapter. Like you really need to take a mirror, look at yourself, know what you've got. Then you need to work with your mind. So learning mindfulness, which is putting your mind and body in the same place in your daily life, and then apply it to sex. Also ridding yourself of sex-negative thinking, which we all have. It's so insidious. You know, sex is dirty, sex is bad. So really working with that then masturbation we know that you need to the it's the most empirically supported technique right is go home and touch yourself find out cuz every vulva is different how do you orgasm then you need to be able to communicate that with a partner so i have a chapter on general and sexual communication and you have to use that that information to change the sexual script so instead of you know foreplay sex which intercourse male ejaculation over, I present lots of different ways to have sex, most like turn-taking models. She comes first, which Ian Kerner's title of his book is Oral Sex When She Orgasms Followed by Intercourse, or She Comes Next, or, you know, if you want to come during intercourse, okay, fine, well, get a vibrator, touch yourself, you know, those kind of things. Yeah,
0: and there's a lot of different ways that people can explore and what works experiment for them too. But it is even about bringing in a vibrator potentially, whether there's a, it's a partner vibrator, or a Cochrane with a vibrator, but not shying away from exploring and bringing in some novel ideas and products potentially. For you and your partner or partners to play around with.
1: Absolutely. The idea that vibrators replace partners, you know, that's all just a myth. Like they don't, they don't cuddle, they don't say, I love you, right? They just provide a type of stimulation we know vulvas respond very, very well to.
0: Yeah. Would you say that the orgasm gap plays a role in desire discrepancy? Between heterosexual couples,
1: I think it does. I don't think it's the whole story, but I think it does because if you're not having good sex, why would you desire it? I think it was Barry McCarthy who said that maybe if women were having better sex, they'd want to have it more. Yeah, yeah.
0: And then even I think it was Peggy Kleinplatz that said, um, you know, great lovers are made, not born. So it really is about. It's the skill building,
1: as you were saying, right? Sex isn't something people are inherently good or bad at. It's something that requires practice and communication yeah. with yourself and your partner.
0: Where do you think people can start with this? I know um, you are a professor. You do research. You write. You also have a private practice, and where you also do sex therapy. Like, when do you feel like it would be an appropriate time to go to sex therapy? I know we do a lot of the implicit model in sex therapy as well. Do you feel like you give a lot of education throughout your work, or like where can people
1: start with that piece of it? I do. And I think the implicit model, which, you know, I'm a huge fan of, it's why self help books work because people are so afraid to talk about sex, to seek help for sex. And one of the things that's so great, which I know you know, is sexual problems, if you don't let them fester and fester, are pretty easily solved with some information and strategies. It's only when you don't get help, they spiral out of control. So, I mean, there's depending what the problem is, right? There's so many good books out there, not just mine there. I mean, I could name a list of, I think, great books. I'm sure you could too. Right. For people to read, start educating yourself, just like you would if you wanted to learn to, you know, I don't know, play guitar. You'd probably like read a book about like, where do you hit the chords? It's the same thing. Yeah. So it really is about just like
0: opening up your mind and not expecting yourself to know everything.
1: Exactly.
0: Where do you think education should start? Because I know, you know, for me growing up, we didn't really learn about like pleasure during sex or healthy relationship. It was really about don't get STIs. So where do you feel like it would be an appropriate Place for this type of education to begin? Like, do you think it's high schools? Do you think it's in the schools? Do you think it starts at home? I know your mom did a
1: really good job, right? She did. She did. But she was unusual. I mean, I have two thoughts on this. One is I think, you know, Michael Castleman has a great new book called Sizzling Sex. And he presents a, in one chapter, I found it fascinating, research that talks about that actually, no matter where, what the messages are, the Best messages come from parents in terms of sexual health, but not every parent's prepared to do that. Right? Like before we get there, we have to educate the parents. So I think that would be great. I also think there's some organizations that are doing like parent-child classes together. But I also think in it, it won't happen in my lifetime. I don't think. Maybe it'll happen in your baby's lifetime. Yeah, I maybe. think that would be good, right? Is I think we need a sex ed system like they have in the Netherlands, Mm. where they start in kindergarten. They start by naming your body parts, just like, you know, this is your nose, this is your vulva. In your vulva, you have a clitoris, like matter of fact. And it gets progressively more sophisticated until high school where they talk about pleasure, they talk about orgasms, they talk about consent, not all, but some schools even talk about porn literacy, the difference between porn, sex, and real sex. I think we would have not only a lot more pleasure, but I think we'd have less sexual assault, less sexual pain. We'd solve a lot of problems if we had this kind of a model in school.
0: where we would normalize like what's realistic and healthy sexual wellness really overall. And then what is more fantasy based? And, you know, it's not where you want to learn. You don't want to learn about
1: sex through pornography at all. Exactly. Exactly. Just... I mean, I'm not the one who came up with this, but it's like, you wouldn't learn to drive from a Fast and Furious, Furious movie, right? You would not learn, you shouldn't learn to have sex from porn. Yeah. Like these are actors and actresses, or even if they're not, they're still doing it for the screen. For their they're show. They're doing it for the show.
0: Yeah, I've even heard about how young people are ending up in the emergency department because of just going straight for like anal sex without any warm up or build up or work up to anything like that. And people are actually getting really severely injured.
1: Absolutely, this is one of my biggest pet peeves. Like anal sex portrayals in porn are like no arousal, no preparation, and the no anus, lubricant, no like, lubricant. That will cause injury. Like so, this is that's such a beautiful example of why we should not be learning to have sex from false images. Right, that's not what their purpose is. No, their purpose is arousal, not education. Right, exactly.
0: I would love to know more about your first book, because that's one book that I have to read. Um, When did you write that book? And then where did that book come about?
1: Oh, thank you. So that book, The Tired Woman's Guide to Passion sex, sex was published in 2009, and it's really written for it's a very targeted audience. Is it, it going to be me after I have this baby? I was just like that probably. Relevant. Yeah. <laughs> it's for women who are balancing multiple roles, heterosexual women in long-term relationships who have lost their interest in sex, which is about one in three. So while it's a specific audience, it's a big audience mm-hmm. um, and strategies to reclaim that desire. Oh, wow. And what are some of those
0: strategies, if you don't mind sharing oh, without giving all the not. trade
1: secrets? No, <laughs> <laughs> that's, I want people to know because I want people to have good sex lives, whether they do it by listening to your podcast or they do it by going to a therapist or they do it by reading my or someone else's book. The end goal is the same. So it's pretty similar steps, but a little bit different. So you know, first learning about desire, right? Mm-hmm. Because we have been sold a false bill of goods about that as well, right? That desire is, it's supposed to come spontaneously, and we feel horny. And that's not, that's true when you're young in an early stages of a relationship, as time goes on and relationships go on, especially for women, we stop feeling spontaneously horny. And many women say, oh. What's wrong with me? Nothing. That's just what happens to our bodies. And yes, it's sad because we miss that erotic, horny feeling. But, you know, think about it. You couldn't do your job. You couldn't raise your baby if you were in that state all the time. So, understanding that there is something called receptive desire, which is my body doesn't feel horny, but I'm open to the idea of sex because I know I'll feel better after. And you have sex to get horny rather than waiting to be horny to have sex. So, understanding that. At. And then again, self care, taking time to take care of yourself. Studies show things like yoga, exercise, you know, improves desire, thinking sex positive thoughts, communication. And then the two more unique things for this are get a little kink, a little experimentation, some vibrators. Are you tired, too tired for sex? Or are you tired of the sex you're having? So mm-hmm. spicing it up. And then, having trysts, planned sexual encounters. People don't like that plan. That sounds so boring. So well, it I always like that all the time, but I like the word tryst. But right, tryst, it's a planned meeting between lovers. And those lovers can be you and your long-term partner because think about it, with a babies and jobs and whatever else, you're not, you don't suddenly go out to lunch spontaneously with a friend. You put it on the calendar and make room for it. And once you get to a certain life stage, that needs to happen for most couples for sex as well.
0: Yeah. So I'm hearing that it needs to be prioritized or at least there needs to be space carved out for the mindfulness around it, like as you were saying, and even just paying attention to the thoughts you're having about it as well. Because if you're being harsh on your body or trying to look a certain way or just like not feeling sexy because you're being harsh with yourself or that inner critic is running rampant, that's going to deter you from prioritizing sex. And then also, like you said, if you're balancing a career, family, baby, all this stuff and juggling, you're never going to have enough time. Like time's just not going to present itself to you. You really have to carve it out and make sure that you give yourself that time. Do you think women are deserving, like feel they are deserving of pleasure, especially with the orgasm gap that you highlight in the second book? Do you feel like that is something that also needs to be maybe... Promoted more is that, yeah. Can talk, talk more about yes, that? You're like I, you're like yes, yes, <laughs> yes.
1: Um. I think so many times we as women, and look, I've written on this stuff and I fall prey to it, okay? It's not easy. You know, I think we take, have you ever heard of grandma's rule? They say grandma's rule, do the work and then pleasure. Yes, Yes, yes. I think we take grandma's rule. I take grandma's rule too far, you know, and I think we think we have to take care of all our tasks and all our duties and everyone else before we take care of ourselves. And I do think it's important to have pleasure and self-care in your life in general, not just sexually. And it sounds like you were even
0: saying by like doing yoga, mindfulness, and just enjoying pleasure on a daily basis that
1: will help translate into yeah. you know, pleasure of sex with the mind. I mean, maybe not an immediate transfer, but it's like the attitude of my well-being is important. My time is important. I have to I take time for me. I meditate. I go to yoga. I take a walk. And starting to think about sex is something that is for you instead of too many times Busy women start to think of sex as a chore they do for someone else rather than something that they do for themselves because it's fun and pleasurable and they immerse mindfully in it. And if it is on a task list or
0: a to-do list to avoid conflict or fights or discord, in a relationship too, other, it sounds like there's an opportunity there to really try to slow down and figure out what kind of sex is going to feel good for you that you're actually going to want for yourself too, which will ultimately benefit the relationship overall too, right? Because no one really enjoys, well, not no one that I've really met enjoys ha- having sex with someone who doesn't want to be there and participate as well.
1: No. I mean, if you find a partner who likes that, run. Yeah.
0: <laughs> run for the hills. So what would you share in terms of how people can start communicating about sex? Like, where can they start with that? Like, maybe they followed a standard sexual script. To your point, if you're younger and there's more spontaneous desire available to you, and then it does switch into this receptive desire where if it's more being more open-minded to it and exploring and see if arousal can present itself later on. How can people start to communicate if maybe that's something that they didn't need to do before? Like where do you suggest they yeah. start with that? It's
1: it's sometimes hard, right? And people are so uncomfortable talking about sex. But as um I quote him in the book and now uh, Corey Silverberg says I love him. Yeah. Yeah. It's I promise you it's much easier to learn to communicate about sex than to read minds. So, you know, you, you, you can learn this skill, reading minds, not so much. So start with honing your general communication skills, owning, what do I want? How do I express that? Use it using I statements, meta communication, which is communication about communication. Don't ask questions that aren't questions. Oh my gosh, my couple's This is a huge one. Do you want to have sex? It's not really a question, is it? Because usually it has an answer, meaning I do and I hope you do, or I really don't and I hope you don't. So really learning good communication skills and then starting, and I go over this in both of my books, starting with what I call kitchen table sex talks, where you talk about sex outside of the bedroom. So it might go something like this. Hey, you know, I want to find some time to talk to you about something important to me, making sure there's good time sit down with a meta communication. Hey, I'm really nervous to tell you about this, but I'm doing it because I really love you and I love our life and I love our relationship and I want it to be the best it can be. But this is scary for me. So I listened to this podcast and they were talking about how sex shouldn't be goal oriented or it's better to schedule it. And you know, I was thinking that would really help me. If we did, you know, so starting with that and then moving to being able to communicate during sex, I mean, that's also something you don't see in porn, right? No. harder, faster, slower, you know, or hang on that hurts or, you know, I got a foot cramp, let's change <laughs> positions, you know, yes. learning to talk during sex and then to process after. How was that for you? How could it have been better? When I was interviewing women for my first book, this came, she didn't want to be named, but I quote her unnamed all the time. It's in my book. She said, communication is the bedrock to make your bedrock.
0: Oh, I love that. Yeah. Good one. It's a
1: good one, isn't it? Yeah, oh, for
0: sure. But you're so right though, because people can't mind read. And then if you left things unsaid, then resentment could start to build or even more frustrations around sexuality could start to build or it could come out in a frustrating tone, which can then be hurtful to one another as well, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So, so I love that you were talking about the kitchen table talks because it really, it's, it sounds like a really warm, healthy, inviting, positive way to approach it. Like, and I, that's why I love your books too, particularly, and even just like listening to different sex podcasts and all that sort of stuff because then it can take the pressure off people trying to come up with it on their own, it really is sparking and educating and informing yourself and then bringing that to the table to further explore together. So that's why I really love that you even have a dedicated chapter for a partner.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's so important. Like, you know, let's do this together, right? This is something we can work on together to make it better. Doesn't mean you failed or I failed. It means, hey, this is something we're going to work on yeah
0: and i love that you really drive home that nobody is the same and so if people are trying to chase a a mutual orgasm like that doesn't always work for someone if people are trying to chase orgasm through penetrative sex like that doesn't necessarily work and taking turns can be more desired and be more effective in terms of closing the orgasm gap too and that is all normal and fine like it's really not about shaming anyone about what works for them
1: let's stop thinking we should be like the people in the movies right you know those are actors and actresses and no matter what works for you i always say however you get pleasure for women during masturbation with creativity and communication, there's no self-pleasure strategy that can't be transferred to partner sex. Yeah. So stop touching yourself one way and then expecting to get off a totally different way during sex with a partner.
0: That's beautiful
1: advice. Ah, Dr. Mintz, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you too. And I appreciate all you do with your podcast and your clients and spreading sex positive messages as well. So thank you. Well, it's easy to do when I have a book called *Cliterate* that I get to hand out to people.
0: (laughs) Becoming *Cliterate*. I hope everyone picks up a copy after listening to this podcast. And I just really appreciate you and all that you do. And thank you for sharing this wealth of information with the world.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.